Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof on News Talk. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Coming up on this week's programme, could we, should we get rid of the menopause? And do the viruses in our gut help us regulate stress? If you'd like to get in touch with the programme, you can email us, science at newstalk.com. You can find us on Twitter, we're at Newstalk Science, or you can WhatsApp us, 087-1400-106. We get to all of those comments in the podcast. Listen and subscribe for free on the Newstalk app, powered by Go Loud. As always, it's uh, kicking off the show by looking back at some of the stories from the world of science this week. We're joined by the female diamond dynamo that is Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland and the comfortable slipper that is Dr. Shane Birkin. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Unkind. <laughs> Our first story, Ruth. Is to do with phthalates, which are nasty chemicals that we somehow seem to use all around us. They're found in all sorts of different things. They're used to make plastics more flexible and they're kind of a binding agent. So you find them in lots of chemical products like cosmetics and fragrances. They're used in medical devices that have plastic and lots of other things that are made of plastic and are flexible have these phthalates in them. Is this the same stuff that's coating um, frying pans or is that different? PFAS, no, those are different. Those different. are forever chemicals. They're also bad, but they're, they're also different. bad, different kind of bad. Okay. So, but these chemicals, so we've known for ages that these are probably what we call endocrine disruptors. So they mess with the hormones in our body and of mm. course our hormones are very important so that can lead to things like obesity, um, reproductive issues. Uh, but this is a new study that comes from New York University and it's been published in the Lancet Planetary Health and it's looking specifically at the link between phthalates and pregnancy and early term birth. Uh, so what the researchers did was they were able to easily access, as pregnant women have to give them all the time, urine samples and they looked at 5,000 different women and they were able to assess the amount of phthalate in their urine and then they were able to see when those women went on to give birth. And what they found was that there was a 50% inc- increased risk of giving birth before th- 37 weeks. 50 yeah, in the, the 50% increased risk. So very significant correlation. Wow. Now, yeah. I should say it is a correlation. Uh, this study doesn't go into causation. Um, but obviously, we know the history of these chemicals. We know that they do disrupt our hormone systems. Um, so, so that happened to women that had the highest amount of phthalates in their urine and they could contrast that with the women that had the lowest 10% amount of phthalates and they were much more likely to have the pregnancy go to full term. Um, So in a way, it's not a radical story in that we already knew that these chemicals were problematic, but hopefully it does sort of stiffen the spine of regulators who are at the moment trying to take on the very, very tricky task of regulating these chemicals. I mean, you mentioned PFAS forever chemicals that, that were used in Teflon coatings. And the problem is that I think the industry have taken kind of a cynical view when regulators come to, to go after these chemicals, because what will happen is that there's lots of different forms of these chemicals. They're huge, big families of chemicals. So a regulator will say, well, this particular variant, you can't use it anymore. And yeah, then the industry will go and find a replacement that could even be worse and it, potentially more harmful. It's legal highs all over again. Yeah. Um, so the women who had more plastics, do we know anything about that? I mean, often when it looks, when we look at poor health outcomes and certainly a premature um, birth will lead to, uh, you know, poor health outcomes in general for those children. Um, we, we often associate that with um, low income. Is, is there any um, understanding of why these women had more phthalates than others or, or, or is there any other data that tells us about that? So again, just the, the researchers are not saying this is causation here. It is a correlative study at right, the moment. Yeah. However, they did say that what seemed to be different about the women that had these higher rates was that they were exposed to more plastic. 
Um, so they seem to use more plastic. And of course, it's back to some of the recommendations around things that have plastic in them. So like not heating food in the microwave in plastic, not storing food long term in plastic. So, you know, they reiterated all of those um, recommendations that, that people should take care, you know, to not expose ourselves to too mm. much plastic. But I guess the more and more we find out about the pollution of plastic in the environment and our bodies, and they do call for this, we need to start taking this seriously and we need yeah. to start thinking about plastic eradication. Uh, Shane, our second story has to do with moths. It's a really cool story, this one. Yeah, it's amazing how they figure these things out. You know, when you go on holidays to a warm country and in the evening you hear this absolute cacophony of noise from insects. Mm. You would think by the volume of the noise that either there's a lot of them or each one is capable of making a, a, a huge racket. It's it's a bit of both, right? So some tiny creatures like a cricket can make an incredible amount of noise. And moths are able to do the same sort of thing. One moth, moth in particular called the ermine moth is uh, the focus of this study. What it does is it it by flapping its wings, it's able to create an ultrasonic warning. Um, and it can uh, use that to confuse bats that would be trying to catch it and eat it. Wow. So, yeah. So what we haven't understood until this paper was published from Bristol was exactly how they're able to make such an incredible noise. And um, the way they've done it is by understanding the mechanism of the way the wing folds. And so there's a corrugated membrane in the wing. So it folds up like the way you'd see a flamenco fan, the way it kind of folds up. And as it does that, it makes a series of clicks or bangs. And um, each bang is um, equivalent to a drumstick hitting a drum. So in other words, yeah. Wow. Yeah, so each little click of the fan then in turn hits a nearby membrane, which is taut like a drum. And so when the, the fan clicks and vibrates, the membrane vibrates. And because the membrane is big, it's able to amplify the sound and produce an incredibly loud noise. And even though the human ear can't hear it, um, what the bats hear is at a, a decibel level that would be equivalent to a noisy human conversation. So it's distracting for the bat. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Isn't it? I didn't know that they made this noise. Of course, we, we don't hear it, but I didn't realise they made any noise in, intentionally, or I suppose this is a, a trait from evolutionary response for being predated on, on by bats, right? Well, yeah, and absolutely. what I think is funny here is that the moth doesn't have a hearing organ, so it doesn't know it's making this noise. So it's just evolved to do it. And because those that are successful at doing it were able to evade being caught more likely, uh, more often than those who didn't have the capacity, like it's evolved that way. But th- they themselves just haven't a clue that they're doing it. So they can't turn it on, as it were. Every time they fly and their wing beats, they get two cracks of the fan. Last week, we, we heard a, a story that... that gave us this sort of an insight through very fast, um, high quality photography. Is that what they used here? Well, the engineers and the biologists worked uh, closely together and there is a combination of it and and, and significant amounts of computer modelling to be able to do this. And they were saying without the advances in computation, uh, they just wouldn't have been able to figure this out. Okay, very cool. Um, It makes me look at moths in a totally different way. Um, (laughs) Our third story, Ruth, has to do with pain and, and I have some questions about this story, but let's, let's lay out the story first. What, what, what happened? So, so this is new research from Virginia Tech that was published in the journal Pain, and that is what is it about? It, what it is about? It is about coming up with new ways to address pain. I mean, everyone has heard about the opioid epidemic, uh, and and really, you know, even very simple drugs like paracetamol, you know, it's not necessarily a good thing to be taking them all the time. So researchers are looking at other ways that perhaps we could deal with pain, and this study uses ultrasound. And again, people will probably 
have come across ultrasound or seen it being used. It's sound waves that are essentially sent into the body. So it's used in imaging, you know, for example, in pregnancy to look at the baby. But you also might have had it if you've gone to a physio. They might use ultrasound uh, on your knee, for example, if you've hurt it because you can generate heat and that might help blood flow to the injury. Mm. But this is using ultrasound into the brain, a very specific deep part of the brain called the insula. And, And it's about whether these sound waves can reduce someone's perception of pain So they had 23 healthy volunteers and they wore a special structure on their head that could deliver this ultrasound to their insula and they were being given heat on their hand to see if they, you know, what their perception of pain was. And they had to score their pain on a scale of zero to nine. And and what they found was that the pain perception was less by three quarters of a point uh, in volunteers that were getting this stimulation to their brain, uh, which might not seem like much, but apparently one point is considered significant. So it's not too far away from that. And, and this Well, clinically significant as opposed to what you and I might call significant, right? So, yeah. so it's considered uh, significant from a medical point of view, but from an experience of pain point of view. Because that was my question. It was like uh, three quarters or, or three quarters of a point doesn't seem like an enormous amount considering the, the sort of requirements for this sort of pain relief? I mean, this isn't an invasive technique. So, I mean, obviously, you know, we may get to a point where this kind of technology is more accessible and more usable. It's it's early days. But but they also did look at sort of uh, physiological um, markers that might tell us how someone is is feeling pain. Hmm. So so they looked uh, at, at other things like the heart rate and the variability in somebody's heart rate. And these are things where you might see a pain response. Yeah. And they also went down. So, okay. so it wasn't just based on someone's perception kind of subjectively. There were some objective measures there as well. Um, and of course, one thing that's interesting is that actually with the heart rate variability, um, you know, our hearts don't beat fully regularly. We're not like a metronome. Our heart is actually, you know, slightly variable. And, it, and there is an optimum variability that you have with your heartbeat. Uh, and in fact, having that variability gives you resilience, which which I didn't know before mm. I read this study. So if your heart is the type of heart that has to beat like a metronome, you know, that actually can be more challenging for you to deal with pain. So interesting science behind your heartbeat and pain in this as well. Um, how do you target a, a point inside the, the brain? Like, I mean, obviously, you know, with ultrasound, you have to pass through other parts of the brain as well, right? I mean, you can't, you can't just skip through that. You do. They, they, had, they had a wearable device that they wore on their heads that was able to focus the, the sound waves towards this very specific point. But again, we, we, we've, we do that already. Ultrasound is used for things like tumours and it can be targeted through different layers of tissue right. into quite specific okay. parts of the body. I yeah. didn't know that. Okay. Um, it's resonance, isn't it? To do that. Like, I think it, like an MRI. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, Shane, uh, our final story has to do with happiness. It does. It turns out it doesn't cost that much, Jonathan, but you knew that all along, didn't you? Indeed. So uh, money doesn't buy you happiness is the is the, the premise of, of this study. Um, I really enjoyed it uh, because it was kind of saying stuff that I felt I knew already, but I have to say the science in this story um, wasn't great, but you can guarantee it's going to make science headlines. What, what happened here was um, a group in Barcelona went and um, worked with indigenous communities dotted right around the world. Um, so these these are, are in, in in the global south, though none of them in in Western countries. They surveyed almost uh, three thousand people, and they used a so called life site satisfaction score. So they worked with interpreters to try and ask people living in different communities 
uh, to answer this survey and then they were able to score the communities. Mm. And they found that people living in um, these communities had a range of happiness as measured by their score. Some of them, some of these communities had uh, reported happiness levels that were akin to very wealthy Western countries. And they're saying in this paper that means that money doesn't um, necessarily buy you happiness, Mm. that you you can have no money at all. Um, and you can still be very happy. So incredibly, 64% of the 3,000 people that were surveyed had no cash income at all, none. (laughs) And so they live in societies where I guess things are bartered and traded and it's perhaps more communal. Um, And I don't know why they think this is news, but they're saying that those people are incredibly happy. Yeah, I mean, that shouldn't be surprising at all. But then, I mean, if you talk about people who don't have a lot of money, the frame of reference, you know, often is the people around you exactly could be near death. And you're like, well, I'm not dying. And so I'm much happier than, you know, because it, it, well, that, that famous adage, how do you make a, a millionaire depressed, introduce him to a billionaire. Um, you know, <laughs> the idea that, uh, that, that happiness comes from material goods is, is, is well debunked, right? It's, it's how we feel compared to people um, in our own social yeah, group. Yeah, so the relative thing's important. Right. I also think it's important to talk about the validity of a score that measures happiness. So also happiness is culturally mediated. So what we would consider to be happy in, in Ireland is going to be different to other countries. And even within Ireland, it's going to be different based on our own backgrounds and our own cultures. So if you're going out... Is to, it? Yeah, absolutely it is. Um, so if you go out and you, because of all of those other factors, it's, it's not a measurable concept. You know, it's it's not like you can say force uh, and, and happiness are, are equivalent or electrical current, uh, etc. All those sort of scientific terms. But there is a drive in the scientific literature to take these looser terms and to, to apply a scientific rigour to them that is just not possible. It's not to say that these sorts of studies are not really important. It's just they need better ways of being able to describe them. Very interesting. Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD and from Science Foundation Ireland, uh, Dr. Ruth Freeman. Thanks very much. Now, historically, menopause was embarrassingly under-researched and underappreciated. But in the past decade, there's been an incredible uptick in interest in this really pivotal moment in women's lives. And it's leading us to ask some rather unusual questions, such as, could we prevent menopause forever? Well, scientists at Yale think that freezing ovarian tissue at a young age may allow us to do that. Joining me now is Dr. Kutluk Okte. He's a professor of obstetrics, gynecology and reproductive sciences uh, at Yale School of Medicine. Welcome to the program, Kutluk. Uh, can you tell me a little bit um, for, for listeners to remind us what exactly happens in a woman's body when menopause begins? Well, thank you for having me. Um, so, Women are born with uh, a fixed number of eggs, all the eggs they could have. Uh, so there, uh, there are about a million eggs in both ovaries at birth. And when those eggs run out, which happens on average around age 51, menopause happens. And uh, when that happens, uh, hormone production that comes with it, uh, estrogen and other hormones, stop being produced. Uh, and these hormones have... Uh, Many health benefits, such as, so these you know ben- benefits. Uh, uh, if you if you want to talk about the uh, the opposite, uh, uh, when the uh, menopause happens, the hormones cease, the risk of heart disease goes up, uh, bone loss happens, hot flashes, uh, of women experience uh, sleeplessness, anxiety, 
depression, uh, quality of life changes, uh, uh, many other uh, changes that are associated with that. People often associate menopause with hormonal changes. And as you, as you mentioned, there, there's lots of things that happen. But in terms of the hormonal changes, is that something that um, sort of stabilizes? Or is it is it that the hormonal changes are uh, fluctuate more post-menopause? Because I know HRT is obviously um, a, a treatment that some women are prescribed to deal with the, the changes in, in hormone uh, levels. I'm wondering, is, is it something, do they just fall off a cliff or is it that they're unpredictable? It is kind of unpredictable. Uh, and uh, for a lot of women, uh, hot flashes is, is a big problem uh, acutely. What exactly is a hot flash? Yeah, estrogen is a, sort of uh, a hormone that brain kind of gets addicted to in lifetime. Uh, and once it's, it goes away, uh, the brain shows a reaction. It's almost like withdrawal uh, from a medicine. And that reaction of the brain manifests itself as a, a sudden bursts of uh, feeling of warmth. And, uh, um, and often and these come at night and wake up women and make them uncomfortable and sweat. And that affects uh, sleep, and then that results in anxiety and depression, other conditions. So, and some women don't even experience uh, hot flashes, and some uh, will have a much more uh, smoother transition. And those who experience hot flashes, uh, these tend to go away after a, you know a couple of years. But the chronic problems uh, that affect uh, a lot more women don't even realize these you know, until these problems develop. And uh, uh, and these all require medical attention later on. So a lot of women um, uh, choose to take long-term uh, birth control, which suppresses the reproductive organs so that there, there aren't any periods and, and that, uh, that cycle is essentially paused. Before we talk about your work, why is it not a, a good practice to continue that into old age so that menopause doesn't come. Right. So hormonal manipulations do, do not prevent menopause because the hormonal treatments uh, or hormonal contraceptives only block the late stages of egg development. In a human's uh, ovary, in a woman's ovary, uh, it takes three months to grow an egg and there are always eggs growing. Birth control pills just stop the late phase, the ovulation part of it. No matter what you do, uh, whether you're pregnant, you're taking hormones, uh, you're sleeping, you're awake, the eggs are being wasted constantly. And you know, women ovulate 500 eggs in lifetime and there are 1 million, yet they are gone by the age 50. 99.9% .9 are reserved and they're wasted. So with this procedure that I've developed, um, we are tapping into this uh, um, unutilized reserve, uh, which would otherwise be uh, wasted. So there is no medical treatment really currently to uh, uh, stop or slow down that process. So talk to me about your research, because um, it, it, on the face of it, it sounds like an extraordinary proposition. What, what are you hoping to do and why? Right. So... You know, humans in general and women are living longer and longer. Uh, in America, average lifespan is 77, uh, longer in Europe, uh, and yet menopause happens uh, at age 50. And women spend, uh, you know, 25, 30 years, more than a third of their life in menopause. So we've been able to extend 
human life. Uh, but there has not been a change, significant change in that age menopause is experienced. So women have to live with uh, uh, this situation uh, for decades now. For many women, it's a welcome thing who go through this without any complications and they, you know, would welcome uh, changes. I'm, I'm a fertility specialist, reproductive endocrinologist, as well as I'm a researcher, so I treat women with these conditions. But for others, um, these changes are uh, an issue and the long-term uh, consequences are an issue. So uh, um, what we hope to accomplish is that by preserving that surplus at an early age and later on returning that uh, reserve in the form of tissue freezing and transplantation right before menopause, delay the process, gain another 10, min- 10 years at least, and, and when it's proven safe, even uh, delay menopause further. So, so this is an extraordinary idea. Talk me through the science of it, because uh, essentially you're talking about a, a, a biopsy at a young age uh, and that, that is then this, this tissue is then re, in, retransplanted into the, the womb later on, just before menopause kicks in. Can you talk to me about um, the process of that? What are you taking? What, what is the tissue that you're, you're taking out? Why are you taking it out? And how does it help later on in transplantation? Right. So... Um, Ovaries uh, contain these uh, microscopic uh, eggs, which we call primordial follicles, and which give rise to uh, growing eggs, and eventually uh, one would ovulate and many would not make it. Um, And these eggs sit right on the skin, uh, we, we call cortex of the ovary. It's like a millimeter thick portion of it, which you can, through a simple keyhole surgery as an outpatient procedure, going through the belly button incision with a laparoscope, like a telescope, um, peel off a piece of that uh, um, skin, the layer on top of the ovary. Think about peeling an orange. And then that's taken out, and that's then uh, frozen with a specialized cryogenic procedure. It uses antifreeze substances, what we call cryoprotectants, and uses a a specialized uh, program uh, computer control process to freeze them over five to six hours so they remain viable and they can remain viable for decades into the future. So when time comes, these pieces are thawed and and then they're then put back into the body. Depending on whether there's interest in fertility or the interest is only in hormones, they can be put in different places in the body. Um, for only hormone purposes, hormonal purposes, there's even a more simplified process that I developed. It can even be done under local anesthesia. So what exactly happens when you transfer this young tissue back into a, a slightly older um, older womb? Presumably, there's a lot of signaling that goes on between the cells. Do we know why this works? Why it, it, it pushes back the menopause by, by 10 years? Well, menopause happens because uh, um, that one egg eventually that gets to late stages uh, uh, that starts producing uh, estrogen and progesterone hormones uh, is no longer there. So uh, you mentioned it earlier, hormone replacement provides that, but it is masking uh, an absence of an hormone. It's not providing the source. So in that case, we're bringing back the source 
that produces these hormones and therefore the usual uh, natural process of this uh, egg development continues and that that one egg that every month that matures continues to produce these hormones and uh, prevents these other changes and symptoms uh, from happening uh, during the menopause. Are, are you saying that the body the, the body senses that there are more eggs and so the sort of pathway to menopause um, isn't triggered because there are still eggs in the womb um, and so everything is just delayed because of um, the signals that these eggs give out. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, the signal is really uh, is the hormone. So, um, yeah, uh, um, estrogen hormone is a, um, a steroid, and it you know goes into uh, a cells nucleus, uh, goes straight in there, and it changes things in there. So it's really a complex hormone, but also the estrogen that's produced by the ovary and and given by synthetic hormone replacement treatments are different so it is quite possible that the effects of natural estrogen and synthetic estrogens are different but one thing is that uh, you asked about womb but you know when we transplant that we return it back into the the pelvis where the you know if there is a desire for fertility where the ovaries normally would be uh, the uterus doesn't age like the ovary. Uh, we know this from egg donation treatments. Uh, with egg donation, women can get pregnant in their 50s. Uh, yeah. not, not that our goal is to uh, you know, achieve women to have fertility in unsafe ages. So uh, you know, in terms of fertility, um, if you replace uh, ovarian function, women can get pregnant later ages. There's a couple of questions here. The first is, you know, I suppose this is a natural thing that happens to women and um, it's not something that I suppose some people would say it's not something that should, should be cured. How do you feel about that? Is there an ethical question about whether or not we should be curing menopause? Right. So I think the term is not... Not that I would want to wish the negatives on it on anyone, right, right. obviously, we, but you know, uh, yeah. Uh, yes, menopause is not a, a disease and we're not uh, trying to uh, eliminate a condition that people uh it's not even a condition it's a physiological process and for some women it's welcome but for many women uh, it has a lot of uh, consequences so this is an option for women who uh, are concerned about those who may have a family history whose you know mother has gone through this and there's a correlation between mother and daughter um, they have medical reasons that make them high risk for that um, at the same time, we could also say that all aging is a natural process and we can stop, you know, treating any kind of aging related condition. Even cancer is a disease of aging. I mean, uh, so we could, you know, we could say that uh, we could leave everything to nature. This is creating option for women. Uh, and uh, also, as you said at the beginning of your program, we haven't looked at menopause uh, the way we looked at other processes in the body for uh, a long time. It's time that we understand, we do more research, uh, and we look at other ways of approaching this other than allowing women to go through, many women to go through this uh, process of menopause and then trying to deal with complications after that. We're talking about a preventive medicine, preventive yeah. approach. Look again. If 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 it helps um, 
uh, I, I'm all for it. Uh, but I, I suppose that there have been questions about, you know, the ph- philosophical question there. But um, the other question I wanted to ask you is how far ahead are you with your research? Have you um, done this treatment in uh, human trials or are you still at the model stage? So this model is based on uh, um, a lot of uh, clinical and biological data. So when I developed the procedure, it was developed for women who are undergoing cancer treatments uh, who would damage these eggs and and force women to go into early menopause. And uh, since I performed the first procedure in 1999, in the last 25 years, we've shown that the procedure is effective in preserving fertility and reversing premature menopause. And as a a result, it's no longer considered experimental. So then we recently started uh, taking a look at it as a way to help healthy women to potentially delay menopause. So in terms of its success in restoring ovarian functions, it's already been proven. Um, Right. Okay. What we don't have direct uh, experience uh, evidence is that what would happen when we use in healthy women, we have been freezing ovarian tissue f- from healthy women, and there are a small number of women who had these tissues transplanted and uh, and their menopause has been reversed. But because it's the pr- procedure is new for this indication, we don't have a 10, 15-year follow-up. Um, that's why a mathematical model was needed to uh, sort of you know, project its success. Otherwise, we would have uh, uh, we would need to wait uh, for 15, 20 years to have these answers. Um, we're also basing our some of our uh, assumptions on women who naturally go late uh, into menopause. About 11% of women uh, worldwide go to menopause late after age 55. Even though the mean age of menopause is 50-something, some women experience menopause as late, late as at the age of 60. So we know from these women that they have some health advantages. So we think that if we uh, help women at least experience menopause, uh, you know, five to 10 years uh, late, they may have some additional health benefits. Right. Just one last question. The... Um the path to commercializing this, so it's an, an, uh, an elective procedure where someone elects to, I suppose, in a commercial way, to, to delay their menopause. What, what are the, are there, are there any uh, legal or medical um, steps that you have to go through before you can offer that as a service? Now, in the United States, as I said, uh, and uh, many countries around the world now, uh, it's not considered experimental. This is like expanding the indication of the procedure. So, yeah. Um, it's not the case in the United States. Some countries in Europe, uh, in, in around the world, they do regulate around indications. Um, so uh, I think you would have to look at, uh, you know, region by region, country by co- country, but not in uh, the United States. Very interesting. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. You can email us, scienceatnewstalk.com. Would you delay your menopause? Is this a procedure you would consider? Uh, Dr. Kutluk Akte from Yale School of Medicine. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. thought that was fascinating. Although, obviously, it's not something that I know a huge amount about uh, beyond what I've read on popular science sites and, and, and news articles. But if you have had experience of the, the menopause or it's something you're fearing, is it something that you would be comfortable just sort of 
pressing pause on it and skipping it entirely. Um, let us know your experiences. You can email us science at newstalk.com. You can also find us on Twitter. We're at Newstalk Science. And last week we were talking about ageing during News Random. We must have said something about a certain age being the winter of uh, our lifetimes because Anne got in touch. She's not happy. She says, thanks a lot for telling me I'm in the winter of my life. I'm going to book another ski holiday. You do that, Anne. Uh, live your best winter of your life. Um, we were also talking about um, Elon Musk's Neuralink brain implants. These are wireless brain implants uh, that will um, help people control objects um, using thought alone. So you might be able to move a mouse around a cursor and click on things. Or you might be able to move a robot is the idea. He's going to start off with patience, which he has um, performed the first implantation already. Uh, and it, it's sort of controversial because it's not happening within the academic world. You know, the academics aren't hearing much about it. He's using a robot to assist in the implantation and that's experimental. There's lots going on. I mean, it's Sounds kind of hugely hopeful, but the end game of having uh, people uh, be able to, you know, I don't know, tweet or do a TikTok video without using their hands, um, you know, uh, that, that seems like a a strange outcome, desired outcome. But he seems to want something along those lines that people can interact with their computers um, wirelessly and and flawlessly. Uh, Power can Power can tool says uh, Dr. Gabby McDavy, uh, CEO of Edgeliet developed this technology when a researcher in MIT almost 20 years ago. No implants, just a sensor close to the brain. He linked it to a computer game involving a man walking a tightrope and translated thoughts of left and right to the game character. Um, yeah, like the idea of um, being able to manipulate left and right, as we said in, in the piece last week, or up and down, that's not hard. Um, and you can do, you can train someone even with an EEG uh, e cap you can train someone to sort of move uh, around. I guess the idea is to make this a much more fluid, quick and more nuanced experience. It's not just about mere motor function, um, as we heard last week. It's also um, slightly uh, slightly more advanced than that. The idea is to be able to, to think and have those thoughts turn into actions um, rather than being very prescriptive with a motor um, function of left, right, up, down. Uh, another person says, uh, Musk has stated that his aim is to get the tech accepted on health grounds and then move to using it for performance enhancement. What, what sort of performance? Really? I didn't read that anywhere. Performance enhancement in what way? What are, they gonna, what, what are you going to enhance um, by, by, by thinking uh, with your computer? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I shudder to think, actually. We were also talking about uh, a story that came out of Diageo. The uh, Guinness yeast was traced back and apparently is a unique type of um, yeast that's come from various parts all over the world, travelled on the back or bodies of people. It's a pretty gross story in some ways. But the, 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 they found that the Guinness yeast is is unique and uh, and has a lineage that goes back to all over the world. Marion Limerick says, Chai Jonathan, some winemakers use indigenous yeasts from their own cellars, saying that it gives unique flavour to their particular wine. Very interesting. Thanks for that, Mary. Although it's not something you'd put on the label, is it? <laughs> you'd probably have to find a way of branding that differently. Um, right, that's it from us on this week's Future Proof. Um, welcome back to Aidan McKelvey, who has willingly returned to the show. God love him. And uh, thanks also to Simon Keane and Steve Daunt and Hugo De Silva on sound. We'll be back with more in your podcast feed on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.